Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. More is coming out on the London Attacker. Mayor Fred very excited about LRT and the Entertainment District. The Keystone Pipeline is dead. Coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. A beauty day in the hammer. The humidity is gone. No more sweat lines on your mask. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. There's lots of ways to do that. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. First off, I uh, want to give you an update on uh, what has been happening in London, and we are finding out more and more information uh, in regard to uh, the suspect that has been arrested for this uh, brutal, brutal, brutal massacre of this family. Uh, Father, mother, daughter, grandmother gone, and a nine-year-old boy uh, without a family remains in hospital at this point. Uh, Here's Global's Andrew Graham telling us more of what we knew, uh, what we know rather, of the accused. Donning orange prison attire and a face mask, Nathaniel Veltman showed no expression as he appeared before the court through video conference. No further charges were laid and the appearance lasted only about five minutes. Veltman told the court he's in the process of obtaining a lawyer and is said to be represented by Hardy & Associates, a law firm in downtown London. Veltman faces four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. His next appearance is scheduled for Monday. Andrew Graham, Global News. All right, let's bring in Steve Jordans, uh, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Steve, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hope you are as well, Scott. Uh, just going off with, uh, from our latest report there, uh, the fact that uh, the accused came in showed no emotion. Your first reaction to that? Well, I mean, not, not totally surprising to at some level. I mean, there has to be some sort of... Um, dulling of emotion to even be able to you know consider any kind of crime like the kind he is so you know typically there's an erosion of empathy the the kind of empathy that would prevent any of us from doing anything even remotely like this and it's probably something that happened over a long period of time for him so he's probably not a person that feels a lot of connection to humanity and and quite possibly you know very little remorse or guilt over what he's done uh, we certainly are finding more and more out about him, uh, estranged from his family. I understand he got counsel uh, to uh, remove the parental responsibility of his parents uh, when he was still a teenager um, uh, as well, uh, was found uh, preoccupied, had challenges, um, a, a lot of anger issues, especially after his parents uh, divorced. What are your thoughts on what we're hearing? Yeah, I mean, you know, when we when we kind of think of any of these situations where people do horrific acts, there, there has to there's often some sort of social isolation involved. Um, they have trouble for for various reasons, often with life in general, but especially with those social aspects of finding community, finding people to accept them, and and that's often what breeds a lot of the the anger and the resentment. Um, and can bring them to a point where they're, you know, more angry at their fellow humans than they are connected to them. And it's, it's sort of a strange place to be because we're such social creatures. But this is almost always the pattern we see where somebody becomes socially isolated. And even in some of the school shootings, I remember in one case they had asked or, or students had for whatever reason contemplated the question, you know, who's most likely to, to become a school shooter? Uh, they'd done this before and they had to actually Uh, identified the person who ultimately became the school shooter because chances are people kind of already had a sense that 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 person was just completely disconnected Uh, and that's almost what you need to be able to to somehow escape the emotional impact this should have on anybody who does anything like this and that disconnection obviously started early on uh with his family calling him uh, peculiar uh, peculiar and challenging and um and and again became violent after uh, the divorce. So I guess that's the first sign is when the person starts isolating themselves, even away from their own family. Yeah, isolating themselves or or being sort of 
isolated by others. Like sometimes it, it can be as simple as, you know, our world can be kind of cruel. And sometimes it can be as simple as certain oddities you have in your behavior, your expression, the way you do things that can just make you not fit. Uh, and once you're sort of not fitting, once you cannot find that sort of place in a social network, then you, the more you're there, the more ostracized you are, you will become known as that sort of odd person, and, and you're probably going to become odder as a result. So there's a little bit of a, a negative cycle that happens um, where a person gets to a point where they just do not like other humans, and if they can find, there's always this concept in psychology of an out-group somebody who's who's not like you in some way and and usually somebody for whom you're very ignorant of you know what they're really about and what they're how they live what they believe in and that ignorance can kind of come through as, as fear they're dangerous people in some ways and that can become the the reason for targeting them uh, so a lot of prejudice kind of follows the same notion of ignorance and then channeling that violence from the ignorance at, at an outgroup at a group you don't know well and this seems to fit that pretty well. It's interesting that as we slowly start to find out more about the accused, that I guess the clues were there. How do we learn from this? How do we move forward? Because not everybody who has social issues ends up killing people. Um, no. yeah. how do you, where do you draw the line here? How do you balance this? Yeah, sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I do think there, one of the things we could be doing early on is, is trying to find a, trying to do a better job of finding those people at a very young age who are being socially isolated. Um, and, and again, in the school system, I think, you know, students and teachers can kind of sense this a little bit. I don't know if we have good, um, techniques to, to sort of, I don't know, counter that isolation to find ways of, of, of bringing them in and interacting with others. There are some some notions of how to do that in the prejudice world, that that having a what we call a common enemy, you know, having um, you and somebody for whom you may feel prejudiced towards work together to solve some goal. That often brings you together and, and, and helps you escape the prejudice. So I wonder if there aren't interventions, if we shouldn't be a little more willing to kind of step in when we see someone being uh, segregated and find ways, if we can, to, to reintegrate them even partially. You're, you're right, every one of those will not go on to become a, a shooter, but every one of those is probably feeling loneliness and separation and a lot of negative emotions because of that segregation. And if we could find ways of, of improving their integration, finding ways to include them in other things, uh, it would be benefiting them and, and we might be having some impact on crimes like this down the road. Uh, documents filed in the parents' divorce in 2016 uh, make no mention of racism or radicalization, but portray someone prone to anger and who is medicated uh, for mental illness. Um, is the hate the avenue for the mental illness? Is this mental illness? How does this change the situation? Yeah, um, I mean, I, it probably is. It probably did begin with the isolation, which gets the anger, and so we hear the anger issues. And, and then there's some way of trying to justify to oneself. Um, if you feel angry enough that you feel the need to do something extreme to kind of tell the world just how angry you are, then is there anything extreme you can sort of half justify to yourself? And I think by, by viewing, you know, through the radicalization lens, these people as dangerous, as scary, as bad for our whatever, you know, immigrant populations are almost always the, the first ones that are targeted in these situations, then he could probably half justify it to himself as though he was not doing something as horrifically evil as he actually was. Um, so, so I think, you know, to some extent, the radicalization can become a vehicle for having some of these people express their anger in violent ways. Uh, and, and that's why it can be so dangerous. You said, uh, tell the world how angry you are. That certainly seems to be evident here when he uh, goes into the parking lot and, and makes contact with the cabbie there and yep. tells him what he's done. He's laughing, and then he asks the cabbie to take a picture of him uh, getting arrested and such. That would certainly, he was certainly trying to say something here, was he not? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a funny generality in life, but this is sort of a twist on it, is, is that we all badly do want to be heard. We're, we spend so much time, like even in our common conversations, expressing ourselves. This is what I think. This is what I think. And, and you know, one of the things I tell other 
tell people is when you want to form good relationships with somebody else, take some time to just listen to them. Don't try to talk to them. Try to listen and, and hear them because when we're when we're heard, we we feel good. When we're not heard, we we can feel very frustrated. And so, you know, I think this guy was very angry. He was probably trying to um, express that anger in, in a variety of ways and, and felt that people just weren't getting it um, at some level. And yeah, I think to some extent, this is an attempt to, to say, this is how extreme, how extremely angry I am. Um, but almost to a point of, you know, there's this hint of you guys made me this way too. Um, I, I mean, I haven't heard him say that, but I, but I see that in some of these things where it's not just see how angry I am, but there's this, there's this hint of, you know, society is, is partly to blame. It's not just me. Uh, and so I think sometimes that sharing is, is meant to kind of, you know, share that anger, and and this is this is what you all you have all made me become. Perhaps I may be reading a little more into that. Um, <laughs> I should be a little careful, but but I feel that sort of sense in some of this is is that he wasn't just it wasn't just about killing these people for him. The killing the people was a means to a to a greater psychological need he had, uh, which I think was to make people hear him and and see how how upset and angry he was. Uh, you said be heard. Social media obviously gives us that platform. Yeah, social media gives us that platform in a completely unconstrained way, which is the yeah. which is the sword of trouble in, in the sense that people can say anything they want and, and they can be heard saying things that are completely untrue and completely inaccurate and they can be influenced by those things. So social media is often the, the tool that, that gives the person that, direction uh you know where he may have been four or five years ago an angry person um who may have then stumbled across something uh, about middle eastern hatred or hatred toward muslim populations and somehow that anger and that hatred that he heard on the internet resonated with with him um and it didn't matter if whatever all these other people were saying was accurate inaccurate or otherwise it was more just something that he could resonate to and follow and I think gave him direction as far as channeling where he was going to take his anger. Uh, the witnesses, not witnesses, those that know him have said that he was very religious, uh, all obviously found conflict with this religion. Yeah. Uh, you know, how often have, have we heard that? Unfortunately, yeah. religion brings so many great things to so many great people in terms yeah. of community and support and all these sorts of things. But yeah, so often it can be used very callously as an excuse to um, consider somebody else. So, so almost always when we're going to do any violence towards somebody, a first step is, you know, dehumanizing them. Either is it, you know, you're doing this in your mind, even countries, when we go to war, we almost always dehumanize our enemies before we attack mm-hmm. them. And it makes it sort of more justifiable in our minds. And so if you can think, hey, these people are believing in a false God and they're taking religion the wrong way and, um, you know, causing all this problem by being, by spreading incorrect views and beliefs, um, then that makes it a little easier to do negative things to them. Um, and so that's, yeah, that, that's not uncommon at all that, that he would view this through a religious lens and be able to view them as somehow not worthy given their religious views. Um, obviously, uh, the report says that he had been on medication for uh, mental illness. Many have called this a terrorist attack. Uh, if there's a if there's a a an area of of mental illness, is a terrorist attack warranted? Uh, we don't know simply because the social media information has been scrubbed. So, if there is evidence of that, we won't know it at this time until a trial and such. Um, but again, balance, you know, on medication for mental illness and, and the terrorism aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's tricky. So with mental illness and depending on, on what it was, um, you know, this is, this is always dangerous to say, but, but we might imagine something like schizophrenia, uh, paranoid mm-hmm. delusions or something that, that can make him think these people are the enemy on, on a lot of these treatments. The medications work really well, but they come with a bunch of side effects. And, and some of the side effects the person doesn't like, uh, for example, it can make them feel kind of dumbed down, like their mind was really sharp and fast before, but now it's not. And so it can be very tricky to convince them to stay on the medications. And, and we don't have a really powerful way of doing that. And so the danger of that is a person that seems perfectly fine on their meds, uh, if they suddenly choose to not. 
can they can fall back into the delusional way of being and such. Uh, and so that can be, you know, that can certainly precipitate some sort of events. Although, you know, let me say clearly that, that the vast majority of the schizophrenic population are not violent, not dangerous, not a problem at all, even off their meds. Um, but they can be. And, and um, it's possible that that's what's going on here. However, for it to have any sort of legal relevance on the terrorism side, you really need that sense that he had no, that he felt he was doing good somehow or felt he was, you know, serving a, a greater good purpose, that he was deluded in such a way that he didn't understand the evilness of his attack. That doesn't seem to fly. I mean, even his behavior after with his, the cabbie, as you've talked about and such, he seemed to be aware of what was going on. He seemed to be aware of how society, you know, the fact that he suspected he would be arrested suggests that he knew he had just committed a crime. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not imagining the mental illness, uh, if it's there, uh, factoring much into the defense uh, for this. Um, I think he might have taken that off the table. Uh, it, may, it may certainly be a contributing factor in terms of some of his beliefs and dispositions towards uh, the Muslim population, perhaps. Uh, but it, it won't be any sort of excuse for the act he committed. Steve, we've only got a little bit of time left, but I have to ask you the fact that he is still alive. He surrendered. He didn't go down. You know, I mean, this could have been so much worse. Uh, he was obviously prepared with armor and such, as we're hearing. Um, how? Why would he, he? He didn't look like he was looking to die here. No, it it, it, it does seem as though, and, and and we're in a world where you know we're just we're just guessing here. We can't obviously can't get into his mind, but absolutely, it, but it, seemed, yeah. it, it seemed like. He was out to make a statement, and he'd made a statement, and, um, you know, that, that was it. That was, for whatever reason, uh, his goal in this whole act. And, and you're right, some people would have just said, oh, I want to make the biggest statement. I can I'm gonna keep going until I go down in the blaze of glory. Not this guy. Um, for whatever reason, that seemed to be what he intended to do. He did it, and he seemed content, which is a strange way to say it, uh, but content that the act was done. Um, and now, I, I don't know, maybe he's ready to go on to this stage, which may be about, again, this kind of being a human um, symbol of how angry uh, he had become. Uh, you know, for some people, I think they just want people to realize how how much pain they're feeling. And, and they feel like the only way to, to show that pain is to is to cause pain that other people will feel. Uh, and and that, that sort of is the vibe I get around this. It's such a horrific attack. So, so senseless. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, uh, the University of Toronto, talking about the London attacker and uh, more information coming out on him. Steve, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've talked about this for an awful long time, and that's the redevelopment of downtown Hamilton's uh, entertainment venues, uh, specifically the First Ontario Centre, uh, the Concert Hall, and the Convention Centre. Uh, good news, Hamilton has agreed to modernize the deal for downtown for the downtown inter- uh, entertainment venues. And to talk more about all of this, Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us, uh, Mayor for the City of Hamilton. Mayor Fred, great to have you here. A, a big day, a big uh, a big month for Hamilton, isn't it? Uh, it is indeed. Uh, you know, we uh, too, even through this pandemic, we continue to work on making arrangements for uh, capital investments and uh, improvements to our transit system. Uh, uh, and in this in this particular instance, uh, a significant uh, private sector investment into our three entertainment facilities: the Hamilton Place, or former Hamilton First Ontario Place, First Ontario Centre. And uh, and the convention center, and so uh, you know what we, uh, we're, we the benefit that we get as a municipality is we get the capital investments done by the private sector. We no longer have to continue to subsidize the operations of the facility, which I think is uh, good news. So overall savings for the municipality over 30 years is about 155 million dollars, and then we get uh, a significant 50 million dollar investment in the First Ontario Center, formerly Cops Coliseum and a $12 million investment in the concert hall, and, uh, and some uh, significant upgrades to the uh, convention facilities as well, all on the dime of the, uh, the consortium uh, at their risk, at their, uh, their cost to operate, and uh, obviously for, for them to also continue to bring added benefits to, to all of those facilities. So more entertainment, more uh, convention facilities, more concert, uh, concert uh, venues, 
all of which spells, you know, significant improvements all around for our downtown. On top of that, uh, we have transacted a couple of city-owned properties, three of them, in fact. Uh, one of them is the Parkade across the street uh, on York Boulevard, the uh, the Vine Street parking lot, and the uh, uh, location at uh, at um, uh, 191 York Boulevard so that they could uh, do a $500 million uh, residential uh, development with a 5% affordable housing component attached to that. So the taxes coming out of that are going to be significant, and that's uh, that's added benefit for us going forward. Uh, we were playing celebration at the beginning of this. I- I- is it mm-hmm. time to celebrate, or what did exactly council agree to? Where are we? Is the, There's no turning back now. Exactly. Uh, the uh, the agreement's done. Uh, um, the uh, you know I'm sure there's some final 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 signatures to be put on, and I, I'll, I'll anxiously await for the documents to come to my desk. But council has unanimously agreed to this uh, this arrangement. Uh, it has been uh, in discussion for quite some time, and you might recall about uh, you know about a year ago we had a procurement process between the Rancor Group and this this QPEG uh, or the Carmen's Group uh, Consortium. And uh, the Carmen's Group Consortium kind of won that uh, initial uh, initial offering, and uh, the negotiations ensued. I, I would say the pandemic certainly slowed things down a little bit, but uh, today we uh, we have an agreement, and we anticipate that uh, the work in the COPS or the First Ontario Centre will start to uh, to happen in 2022, and uh, equally the investments in the Convention Centre as well, and then they'll roll out. The investments uh, on the properties that we've transacted, uh, you know, uh, they have to go through the normal application process for you know, residential construction. Uh, so all of those things still need to happen. And they are, and I know they are, looking at not only the properties that we've uh, transacted to them, but other adjoining properties that they can make arrangements with for additional developments, whether it's residential, commercial, or otherwise. So. Uh, it's, it is time to celebrate. I think this is a great opportunity for us to get uh, the all-round benefit, turn over the the, the liability and the, uh, the, uh, the management of these facilities to the uh, to the private sector. Uh, they, by uh, by all intents and purposes, have been managing these facilities facilities through the private sector uh, for quite a number of years now, about seven years for the convention center and uh, for the concert hall and. And uh, First Ontario, uh, it was Global Spectrum that's been the, uh, the, the ongoing operator. So from a city perspective, um, it is nothing but savings and benefit. Uh, from the private sector perspective, it is a great opportunity for them to generate more activity, to entertain more people in our community. Once pandemic is over, I'm sure there's going to be a thirst for entertainment venues, and they have the ability to, uh, to ramp it up and uh, to their benefit, as well as the surrounding property. So I'm, I'm very excited. I think it's a momentous day for the city yesterday. Uh, my hope is that uh, LRT will cross the line as well, and the synergies between all of that um, is actually quite amazing. So uh, being able to uh, get good public transit access to all of these great venues is going to benefit not only the venues, but our transit system as well. So it's, uh, it's a great, great opportunity for future success here in Hamilton. I'm not really seeing or have seen any opposition to this since this whole plan started way back when. Uh, it obviously seems like a no-brainer, but how do you explain the difference of opinion here? Uh, and this is, again, a downtown project, and yet LRT is so divisive. How do you explain so much support for one and yet not the other? Well, you know, the uh, the, the LRT has got a longer history, obviously, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really kind of given up on trying to explain the unexplainable here. Uh, you know, the, uh, <laughs> good point. It, it, you know, the, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, we've twice now had, had confirmation from, uh, levels of government, uh, to support the LRT. And, and when I look at the politics of this now, the NDP fully support LRT. Uh, the conservative government now has put their mark on it provincially here saying they support LRT and have put additional dollars on the table. The Liberal government initially supported the LRT uh, here in the province of Ontario and uh, have said uh, repeatedly as they run up towards an election that uh, if, if it isn't uh, reinstated by the time they get there, they would reinstate it if they were the government. So the politics is completely aligned. And now we have the federal government 
coming coming forward saying, you know what, we're we're gonna we're gonna make up what some would believe the shortfall in funding. Uh, we're gonna provide 170 billion dollars to uh, to to I'm sorry, 170 million dollars. And I got my num- numbers mugged up. 3.4 million, 1.7 billion dollars. Yeah. They are going to provide, which is half of the capital cost for this project, and they're fully committed to it. It, it totally meets their objectives in terms of electrifying the transit systems in the country, uh, dealing with issues of climate change, and providing economic stimulus for shovel-ready projects. So I, I don't know how to explain to people that don't get it how they can get it, um, other than you know the facts are that this is the largest, single largest investment in the city of Hamilton, bar none, that will create jobs, provide opportunity, and get that, that economic uplift that you and I have talked about on many occasions all the way along the corridor that uh, will drive more urban, uh, intensified housing, uh, a good portion of which will be affordable housing, that uh, all, of, all of which, all of the above we all need, including 7,000 employed uh, people in, to create this uh, this project uh, for the next five years or so. So that's uh, nothing but a win-win-win, especially coming out of a pandemic. Uh, and, and again, we're seeing that uh, people are ready to spur our uh, help and spur our economy on by making these kind of strategic investments. They'll be doing it here and they'll be doing it right across the country to help the economy get back on its feet. Uh, the best way to do that is to make those kind of key strategic investments that are going to make a difference in municipality. And the downtown precinct uh, is, is very much the same. It is, uh, it is an opportunity for obviously a lot of work to get done. Uh, we are behind in the, in the capital upgrades on, on the first Ontario center, which is now, you know, showing its age and needs, needs significant investment. We won't have to make that investment as, as taxpayers. That'll be done by the private sector. Uh, and they are going to make those facilities better. They're going to provide more entertainment opportunities, and they're going to create a development around it that's going to create employment, uh, opportunity, housing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know what? My, my job as mayor is to make sure that we put the city on a path for success in the right way. And this, this one, all of these check the boxes. Uh, you know, it, it, it curbs urban sprawl, both, both the, the downtown development as well as the LRT development. Uh, they are uh, opportunities for reducing uh, climate change, and they add great vitality to our city at a time where we need uh, investment, economic uplift, and new employment to spur our economy on. Uh, anybody who's been down near the waterfront lately can see that a lot of this stuff has already started, development certainly along uh, the waterfront and such. You're talking about this being started uh, for, the, for the entertainment precinct uh, next year, is this, and this is a two-year project to complete this? Yes, that's right. Okay, yeah. so then, and then theoretically, the start of LRT. When will these two projects combine? Because theoretically, one will start as the other one is finishing, or perhaps at the same time. Yeah, I think the the downtown one will be long finished before you know LRT is finished. So LRT yeah. will be uh, will be a five year project. Uh, the rollout of the the Pier Eight, and you know, as you as you mentioned, uh, you can go down there now. The roads are in. The the recreational part of the pier is being finalized, and will be done by the end of the year. Uh, the uh, the arrangement has been made with a, a buyer to uh, to acquire uh, uh, two two parcels of property that will then lead to development, uh, starting at the front end near Guy Street, and uh, and we're going to continue to roll out those uh, those new developments. So when you look at the the whole of the massive amount of investments that are happening in our city over the next five to ten years it is going to be dramatic uh, transformational yeah. uh, investments that is going to add enormous value and opportunity to the entirety of the city the waterfront uh, been working on uh, you know in partnership with others on the waterfront for 25 years the grand vision has been let's make this a signature residential enclave on our waterfront and uh, that is coming to pass in spades and, uh, you know, I look forward to shovels going in the ground there in the next year or so as well to see, to realize that uh, residential growth that's, uh, that's going to be happening there that I think is going to appeal to a lot of people that, that want to live there, including uh, yours truly. Um, and so, uh, you know what, and we, we are working on affordable housing in a very, very big way here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, we spend about $100 million annually on affordable housing and housing supports and homelessness. 
Uh, we're getting more money from the federal government as we speak. Uh, just recently uh, acquired $145 million of grants and loans for more and more affordable housing projects. And more and more of them are happening throughout the city, uh, including, uh, you know, the Roxborough area where we're, we're going to see uh, 97 uh, uh, townhouse units uh, mm. converted into about three or 400 uh, uh, partly affordable, partly market uh, units that uh, is on existing infrastructure on the transit route. Uh, that is just a great opportunity to do some repurposing and renewal of housing and provide more mm. opportunity for housing in our community. So there are projects happening everywhere. And uh, notwithstanding, airport growth, uh, yeah. Amazon mm. Fulfillment Center, uh, you know, the message and the mission is provide growth and opportunity and jobs and community benefits throughout this entire process. And that's exactly what we're doing. Wow, what an exciting time to be in the hammer. And just so you know, uh, Mr. Mayor, I'm uh, obviously doing, been doing the show from home for over a year, and because I need paper, I'm using scrap paper from old show sheets. I discovered this the other mm-hmm. day, a show sheet from May 26, 2015. What we were talking about at 12 noon was Premier Kathleen Wynne giving us $1 billion for yep. transit. So yep. that was, that's 2015. I, you know, I've, got a, I've got a poster on my, my wall here in the office, uh, the Spectator uh, cover page, yeah. Hamilton LRT is a go, uh, and uh, you know it's been a it's been a go and a no go ever since. But uh, I'm hoping that it's back to go. And and but speaking of which, uh, you know there are, there are enhancements happening on the go service uh, areas as well through Metrolinx that the the province is committed to. So there are uh, lots of uh, lots of interconnecting. Uh, developments that uh, I think are going to put Hamilton in a very, very good place uh, coming out of this pandemic, for sure, if we agree to move them forward. Very cool. Mayor Fred Eisenberger, City of Hamilton. Hamilton agreeing to the modernization deal for downtown entertainment venues. Very exciting. Uh, congratulations, Mayor. Uh, we're moving forward. Great to see. All right. World leaders uh, gathering, uh, gathering in the U.K., uh, and the Prime Minister, amongst them, just landed uh, at the G7, and uh, of course to discuss uh, everything, um, uh, everything worldly within the G7. And obviously, haven't been together in a long time, so uh, it'll be fascinating to see how this all moves forward, especially with Joe Biden uh, in charge of the United States uh, rather than uh, Donald Trump. Apparently, on the agenda, uh, climate change, uh, tax, uh, uh, not federal tax, uh, world taxes, and, and how that can help. Uh, countries move together, move forward together uh, also. And then apparently after that, uh, three days um, at the G7, then the Prime Minister will travel to Brussels for a NATO summit. So it looks like a busy time for the Prime Minister over the next few days. Let's bring in Andrew McDougall, Professor of Political Science, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Very well. I hope you're well, too. So, uh, obviously, this is the first time a lot of these people have gotten together. I guess uh, the Prime Minister is now um, a little more aged and, and statesmanlike for these things. He's not the, uh, the rookie anymore. What is the objective of this time out uh, at the G7? Yeah, you're right. I think he's now the uh, the, the second longest serving uh, leader at these things. So he's, uh, he's no longer the rookie. Um, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that uh, this is all about. This is really the first time that any of the leaders have had an opportunity to meet in person. So... There's a bit of a symbolic side to this, I think, that just this is the world that's beginning to get back to normal. You know, there, I think there's something to be said for, um, you know, meeting in person, not necessarily always uh, online. Um, but of course, they've got a busy agenda ahead of them. They've still got to take care of the uh, pandemic, which is still raging. They've got to talk about global vaccinations, climate change. There's a lot of stuff that they're going to want to uh, to talk about. Obviously, uh, Joe Biden, now the president of the United States, we certainly remember, uh, remember these situations uh, with Donald Trump at the helm. There was usually other things to talk about other than world issues uh, going on. Uh, what does it say now that uh, Biden is in, in control of the United States? And he's a veteran here, too. It's not his first uh, rodeo. How does it change these sorts of, of meetings now that uh, Biden is in control as opposed to uh, Donald Trump? Oh, it changes it a lot. There's, uh, this is going to be a completely different uh, tenor of meeting than what you would have seen with uh, with Donald Trump. I mean, it's it's getting back to normal in the sense of uh, you know the pandemic beginning to pass, but it also I think for the Americans is at least as far as Joe Biden's concerned, trying to signal getting back to normal of American leadership in the world. 
So Biden is coming to sort of reassert uh, American authority and to signal to the rest of the world that he's interested in multilateralism, working with the allies, uh, you know, figuring out solutions to, um, you know, common solutions to common problems. Uh, so this is a big moment for him to sort of showcase what uh, his administration is going to be about and, and how he sees the rest of the world, you know, playing a part of that. Will there be a lot of be glad to have you back? Yeah, I think absolutely that um, uh, the, the members of the G7 will, even if they don't come out and say so directly, are going to be very happy to have uh, Joe Biden um, as as the president. Donald Trump did not believe in multilateralism really at all. In fact, he could be very, very disruptive at these types of meetings. I and mean, we certainly yeah. remember what happened when he was, was here in, in Canada uh, and could be quite disruptive to the agenda that, that they had. So the fact that Biden is now coming to play ball and play ball as a team is going to make life a lot easier for these for these leaders. Uh, how now that uh, Biden is firmly behind climate change, I mean, he canceled the Keystone uh, first day in office and that officially has been uh, declared dead today. How does the U.S. being involved in this discussion change it? Uh, in climate change? Yes. Well, I mean, Joe Biden is coming in with, uh, you know, as, as a champion of this and, and is seeking global action. So, again, it's going to be a much different story than uh, than it was with Donald Trump. You're right. I mean, he canceled Keystone uh, almost immediately when he got into office. Everybody, you know, that was not great for Canada if you were you know, a sport of the oil fans, but this was something that he had promised to do. So it wasn't he wasn't unexpected. Yeah. Uh, but he's going to come in and he's going to make uh, any, any of the other leaders interest in uh, climate change sort of central to his priorities. And it's going to make it a lot easier for them to pr- pursue solutions to that problem. We certainly know the character and the makeup of the United States. Will he be able to move as fast as the others want him to? Uh, I mean, he's going to be, he does have uh, Congress, but he's got more checks on him than, than the other leaders do. And that's, of course, something that they're going to be very aware of um, coming into this. But that also works normally with pretty much every American president. Everybody really has a pretty good sense of how the American system works and, you know, what the what the constraints are uh, on the president. So, I mean, they're going to take everything that he says, obviously, with a little bit of a grain of salt. But, you know, that can often happen sometimes in other countries, too, where, you know, you can make promises on, you know, the world stage, but it might be a different story when they get back and, and try to carry them out domestically. Uh, we certainly know how uh, the ingenuity and 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 productivity of the United States, how when they flip the switch, they can turn things around pretty quick, whether it's becoming energy self-sufficient, whether it's becoming developing, whether it's developing a vaccine. If they put that sort of ingenuity behind climate change, uh, how does it change the discussion? And um, it'll be fascinating to see how uh, the prime minister and the president get on uh, on this issue. Uh, will Biden be as aggressive as, say, the prime minister is? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I think that's one of the things that uh, we're all kind of waiting to see about what, what Biden's going to do when he when he arrives there. Um, you're right. I mean, it's the United States is, is sort of certainly, as they say, you know, the leader of the free world. So having having them on the same page as the other leaders is going to make life a lot easier to facilitate a kind of global deal, you know, kind of implement the, the Paris Accord. Uh, so it could make uh, make a significant um, difference. Of course, you know, these countries are not the only ones in the world, right? I mean, it would have to involve countries like China, India, Russia, and so forth. So it's it's not the end all and be all uh, at a at a G7 meeting when it comes comes to climate change. But it's going to make things a lot easier. Uh, and, I mean, climate change has been a big part of what the prime minister's agenda is, too. And so they're going to see eye to eye on this one. Uh, and it's going to make uh, that file a lot easier for both of them. It certainly seems in Canada that's it for the uh, oil and gas industry in the sense that we're not building anything more. Uh, you know, it, it appears as if governments just walked away from that. Um, and, and in fact, kind of, you know, is promoting um, uh, either retooling or, or certainly killing the old version of the energy industry. Is there that same sentiment in the United States simply because, yeah, I mean, the, the size and, you know, we know what Texas and, and, the, and the, uh, the energy hub is all about down there. Is the same sentiment down there that, you know, that's it, we got to wipe this out? Well, I mean, I think in the United States, climate change, I mean, to a degree, of course, in Canada, but in the United States, it's often a very partisan issue. I mean, this was something that, uh, you know, that, that Donald Trump certainly played off of, where he was promoting, you know, clean coal and, and the interest of coal workers and, and trying to promote, promote that industry. Um, but I think, and I'm not a huge expert in this particular area, but we've certainly seen a greening and a move towards the greening of the economy and, and trying to get, um, you know, reduce emissions from 
a number of different perspectives. So, uh, and most companies sort of aware of this. So that is, I think, the general trend that it's it's heading in, and, and Biden is going to seize as much as he can with the political capital there to uh, to make that happen. How much time will the president and the prime minister be able to spend together? Will they have a chit chat by themselves? Well, I don't have a number of minutes uh, for you, but I know that they are meeting on the sidelines of the uh, of the conference. And of course, they have a lot to talk about just with regards to the bi, uh, bilateral relationship. The biggest one here, of course, is the reopening of the border and how that's going to happen. And we've certainly seen how the Americans at this point are pushing the Canadians to do this a little faster uh, and some resistance in Canada. And to a degree, that comes down to the fact that uh, Canadians are getting vaccinated, but they aren't quite as vaccinated as, as Americans are. Uh, and so there's some, you know, move to to push, you know, that up, uh, those numbers up before they they reopen. But also some of the conditions, I think, are still kind of on the table. I mean, there's been discussions around uh, documentation of, of vaccination, and that's something that I understand the Canadians are interested in pushing. It's a lot less popular in the United States, so they're going to take uh, take some time to see if they can make some progress on those issues. Uh, what about uh, issues uh, around China and specifically the two Michaels? Will that come up? Uh, well, I, it'll be interesting. I don't know uh, specifically. I mean, China is obviously going to be, you know, hanging over uh, this group, as is Russia. Uh, I mean, these are these are Western nations that you know share a security interest, um, and you know um, they're going to obviously going to want to think about some of those issues there. The two Michaels may, uh, I suppose, come up as part of, of of those discussions. But I mean, generally, the the relationship to China is something that you really can't escape. It's something like this. So it's going to come up one way or another. Uh, do you think we'll see a more uh, united uh, allies, more united on this issue and and moving forward? It seems up till recently, very you know, relatively recently, uh, everyone's been kind of fragmented. Will we see a united front there? Uh, I mean, again, this will be interesting to watch. Uh, I mean, Biden has been obviously been uh, a little bit aggressive on uh, you know signaling his displeasure. Uh, with Russia and and some of um, and some of the issues that he has as with China, uh, the Europeans are not always quite on the same page with this, and you know that can reflect the fact that they live a lot closer to Russia and they don't have the same sort of you know relationship to to China that that the Americans do. So I think the Americans are going to try to you know project this common front, um, and there'll be an appetite for this for sure uh, in in Europe, but it would it will be unlikely to be on exactly the same page. They're going to have uh, you know some differences of opinion. So uh, this all happening in the UK, and then the Prime Minister travels to Brussels for uh, a NATO summit. After that, what happens there? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is going to be part of the same story. I mean, this yeah. is Biden's opportunity to come on out and you know reaffirm his commitment to these institutions that Donald Trump, frankly, had very little time for, and was in many times actively trying to undermine. So, I mean, here the the story is kind of the same. I mean, Biden is the big player in these organizations, and he's going to come back to, uh, or he's going to arrive, to signal that there's been a shift in U.S. policy. There's a, a policy now of re-engagement and interest in, in these institutions and, and a desire to support them. And to sort of overcome some of the damage um, that was done by Donald Trump to these relationships. And, I mean, he's going to have his work cut out for them. A lot of, of countries are perhaps understandably a little... Um, Skittish, skeptical a bit of of the Americans after having uh, gone through the uh, the Trump administration, but they're going to be open and receptive to the message that he's sending, uh, and he's going to really be on his best behavior to signal that this is more than just a, a short term change. How would Republicans in America be viewing this? Uh, that seemed to be the one thing that did get them upset when when Donald Trump was would go over to these summits or or meetings or what have you and and just create chaos with countries that were normally our allies. Um, how how would they be responding to that to this? The Republicans. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it might be interesting uh, to watch. I mean, the, the Republicans, I mean, the Democrats are too, but the Republicans are often interested in defense issues and and a sort of American leadership. Um, so, I mean, they'll be they'll be watching, but I mean, he's still going to be a Democratic president, so they're going to see if they can find faults in the way that you know he's handling uh, the files and and, and are going to try to score some kind of, of political advantage. But I, I think that there is an appetite that uh, you know the, the United States was to a degree missing. Uh, in much of world affairs over the last couple of years. And so I think there's going to be a little bit of leeway on both sides of the aisle 
uh, to see, you know, how the Americans we engage and, and on what terms and, and if they could be done successfully. Uh, only got a little bit of time left. I can't let you go without asking you about the future of Donald Trump. Is he gaining ground? Many were uh, very concerned after the election inauguration that he would uh, continue to uh, to uh, wreak havoc. How, 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 how much control, how much influence does he have? Uh, well, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, he's obviously, and this is going a little bit outside of my, my area, given that I spend most of my time on Canadian politics. Uh, I mean, right now we're in kind of a down period in American politics. It's right after the presidential election. The midterms aren't for a while. So anything we say now is a little bit speculative because it's not really going to matter and we'll have forgotten about this in two, three months, you know, in a year or so. Um, but I mean, every indication is that Donald Trump has still got a very strong hold on his party uh, and the base is, is still very, um, uh, very enamored with him. And so the Republican Party generally and its leadership are trying to navigate that and figure out what the future here is going to be, and to the extent it can step away from from Donald Trump with a with another with another leader. He hasn't made any of his intentions clear. He doesn't have to do that now. Uh, he'd have lots of opportunity if he if he wanted to, um, you know, for example, announce that he wanted to run again. I don't know if anybody really thinks that's necessarily going to happen. But he's still a player, and he's still out there influencing the discussion, uh, and that's something the Republicans have to deal with, whether they want it or not. Andrew McDougall with us, Professor of Political Science, University of Toronto. Andrew, thanks so much for the time. Be well. No problem. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. So I get a phone call at home while doing the show on air, luckily in the news, from a government employee. I couldn't believe it when she asked me why I hadn't filled out my 2021 census. In a deflated voice, I said, well, because we're in the midst of a global pandemic and there are bigger fish to fry, like keeping my Internet running while doing my show from home and the rest of the family is working and at school at home. She then told me it shouldn't take very long as it was only the short version like that was supposed to make me feel better or had any understanding what I was talking about. I understand the importance of the census and gladly filled out the long-form version last time. But is this really a priority now when most are trying to get fully vaccinated while keeping their sanity? And how much are we paying this government employee to enforce this non-priority? And finally, this past year has been anything but normal. And I'm not sure how accurate this data is going to be when comparing to past years. What next are you going to call and ask me while I'm working from home? If I want an election? I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Keystone uh, XL Energy Pipeline uh, has been scrapped. uh, And this has been going on, uh, trying to get it built, stop it, start it, stop it, start it. I think a lot of it's already done. Uh, but it is done apparently now. Uh, here's a report from Jeff Smith from Global uh, giving us an update. TC Energy and the Alberta government have reached an agreement to end the pipeline project after its permit was revoked by U.S. President Joe Biden on his first day in office. The province had invested $1.5 billion along with a $6 billion loan guarantee to speed up construction that is now not going to happen. 150 kilometers of pipeline had already been built in the province, and the government says a completed project would have generated at least $30 billion in additional royalties. A government release says the two partners are exploring their options to recoup the province's investment. That final price tag is expected to be within $1.3 billion. Premier Kenny has previously talked about suing the U.S. Kenny says Alberta will work with American partners to ensure the province helps meet U.S. energy demands. Jeff Smith, Global News. All right, let's bring in Dan McTeague, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. He's a former Liberal MP and is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. I guess no surprises here for you? No, none at all. And uh, I think the last part of the uh, story there from Global was correct. Uh, The United States will now be scrambling uh, for alternative supplies, uh, supplies that just aren't available right now and explains why we're at 70 bucks a barrel and moving higher. So uh, Alberta was talking about recouping some of this money. How would they go about that? Well, I think some of the money has to be recouped from, you know, from TC Energy, from TransCanada Energy, uh, because, of course, it was a loan guarantee. They've used up some of that. Uh, but I think the U.S. government has given approval, then removed approval. Uh, and it's in that context that there may very well be room for civil litigation uh, 
uh, you can't change your mind, even if the administration's political tunes and flavor of the day happens to change, uh, you still have financial obligations. So it's possible. Uh, I'm no expert in the area of commercial bilateral uh, trade law, but I would expect that uh, uh, the permission uh, given and, of course, armed with uh, some 20 to 30 U.S. states that are also objecting to the Biden administration's uh, cancellation of Keystone may very well be sufficient and good grounds uh, for Alberta to have a case. But that may be more of a political than uh, a realistic. Uh, at this stage, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the United States is uh, is in big trouble. They need the oil. Uh, their refineries run on heavy Canadian oil. It's available. It's cleaner than the stuff that's available through Iran, Saudi Arabia, or even Venezuela, or even Mexico, which the two last countries cannot provide. So the United States has a big problem on its hand, and uh, I'm not so sure that that's, uh, we've heard the end of the story. It does, however, suggest that uh, by hook or by crook, that oil has got to get to uh, the United States. looks like uh, those with uh, significant investments in things like uh, rail are going to be doing very well. Well done, uh, Mr. Buffett. Well done, uh, <laughs> the uh, the owner of Microsoft, uh, whose name escapes me right now, but it's Bill Gates, yeah. my time. Bill Gates. Well done, guys. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, it, 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 does this, what does this mean to the industry? Because I've read, too, that they just reroute stuff elsewhere. And I'm looking at a map from the Globe and Mail from TC Energy, and there's already a Keystone system which sort of runs, yeah. I guess, from Alberta to, to Manitoba, then goes south to, to all those areas like Houston and such. Uh, this was sort of a shortcut across Montana, uh, South Dakota, and Nebraska. So uh, difference between one and the other? Congestion. Uh, you needed to build a second one because that original one came into being 15 years ago, uh, 10 years ago, uh, and over the time has really taken uh, the bulk of uh, increased demand by the United States for Canadian oil. Look, um, it's, I think it's really important people understand that uh, U.S. refiners, the big ones we're talking about, and many of us may be familiar with this now, Scott, uh, the ones in the U.S. Gulf Coast represent 50% of all the oil produced uh, in the United States and used for a variety of things, including fuel for planes, trains, tractors, automobiles, etc. Uh, most of those refiners have configured to using heavier oil, not just because it's cheap, but because you can do more with it. Um, the cost of running a Canadian production, an oil uh, facility, uh, with our emissions dropping there, and they have been very impressive in the way they've been doing this new technologies, is about 30 to 40 bucks a barrel. American refiners, our American producers, are closer to 60 and 70. Uh, so, you know, there's, uh, when Canada has uh, an oil production facility, it can last for 30, 40 years. The American stuff and others around the world might be lucky to get four or five years, and then you have to find another place to drill, and uh, hopefully you'll find oil there as well. So, you know, the two things that I think become pretty apparent, Canada can continue to provide, and the United States will continue to need more oil. Otherwise, it will slip back to the good old days of energy insecurity uh, and be subject to what OPEC is doing right now, uh, and which they did 20 years ago, and that's uh, to become the effective swing producers along with Russia, and drive the price to levels no one anticipated this time last year. We were paying, you know, in March, April, May, we were paying sub $30 a barrel for oil. It's now $70 a barrel and pushing up every day. It's not going anywhere. And the world is still a long way off from complete recovery where demand is going to go through the roof. The United States, I think, as I mentioned now, uh, quite emphatically, uh, has a serious problem on its hand. And unless they're prepared to accept substantial increases in fuel prices, and the cost of driving their economy, which most are not, uh, the Americans uh, are going to have to revisit to some form of alternative to Keystone. I'm not sure what that's going to look like, Keystone XL, but it looks like uh, um, the uh, the idea that uh, somehow we can wish oil away uh, is uh, is the stuff of uh, you know dream world fantasy or what some refer to as La La Land. Um, so is that it for Keystone? Will this word ever come up again? I mean, a portion of it is already built, isn't it? Is it? Is that it? Uh, well, I think that's it. If you're going to have, you know, uh, one party says, let's make it happen, and the other one says not, and they're subject to elections every four years, uh, no one has an appetite to invest money that they're likely going to lose uh, based on political whim. What I think will ultimately uh, make us this a final matter is once uh, the Americans see, you know, uh, in effect, five dollar uh, a gallon oil, uh, when they see the equivalent of dollar forty-five, dollar fifty for a liter of fuel, 
and uh, the electrical alternatives are simply not there, uh, or they see unreliable events such as what they saw in Texas during the cold snap uh, this winter or what they saw last summer in California, which is likely to happen again. Uh, there is going to be a significant pushback in the United States towards this idea that uh, you can block pipelines as a metaphor for uh, being all in favor of climate change. That, that argument aside, I, I do want to set it aside because it's not relevant here, although it has a lot to do with why we're at this point. Uh, the fact is no one, including Elon Musk, uh, will tell you that you can do without fossil fuels. It's necessary in everything that we do. Regardless of what we think, there isn't a single thing that we are looking at, that we're feeling, that we're using today that doesn't have a component of fossil fuels. So saying you can do away with it at a time when oil demand is likely to increase for the next 20 to 30 years globally uh, just doesn't seem to equate with the decision that we see here today. But uh, I guess what TransCan Energy is saying, like so many others, that uh, no problem, folks, you don't want the oil. Uh, then continue to realize you're going to pay through the nose in a whole pile of ways that you can't possibly conceive at this point. So um, how much of this was complete? How far along was it? Uh, it was way along. I mean, there were over a 1,000 U.S. Uh, steelworkers that were digging ditches and digging trenches and uh, doing the backfill and building steel and steel being you know, demanded from U.S. Uh, suppliers. Uh, the effect is about, uh, for, for them, uh, is, is far more than what it would derive in Alberta, uh, revenue for Alberta. You've got a lot of refineries that are, uh, that are just <laughs> too, only too happy to say, hey, we don't have cheap, uh, alternatives anymore. Uh, we'll bring it in from other countries, unstable countries, countries with no environmental record or track record, uh, and for which, uh, we're likely to see even greater numbers of uh, Russian ships going down the U.S. Uh, you know, Pacific Coast uh, and other ships from the Middle East coming in and dropping off where they can fuel uh, or oil in this case. I have a feeling that uh, Americans are likely uh, to have, uh, you know, a rather significant violent response to what they're about to see. And make no mistake, at the beginning, it was thought that this wasn't about Biden. But the gas price increase that you're seeing in the United States, which has got a lot of people interested. And remember, I spent five years doing nothing but U.S. media on gas prices, uh, I can tell you right now, uh, the shock is there. And it's only a matter of time before they make the connection between the green policies uh, or the green energy policies, the green reset of the Biden administration and uh, their inability to make ends meet. A lot of people recognize that uh, this has gone too quickly, it's too political, and it, uh, it completely obliterates reality, the needs of Americans with a product that uh, is going to be around for a long time. Uh, major oil companies in Alberta coming together to set climate targets uh, and such, and this apparently is precedent-setting. How important is this? It's a response to the blackmail uh, of uh, reg- over-regulation by the governments. It's a last-ditch attempt to try to appease, uh, but it won't work. Obviously, uh, it's not enough uh, for those who are forcing you to make these decisions uh, to, uh, to bend and to uh, change your emissions output what they really want. And I think this is something that the, the Synovuses and the Suncorus and the Imperial Oils have to recognize. Uh, they, and I said this this morning, the 770 Calgary News, your sister station out there, these individuals, the eco-warriors, want this product in the ground. They don't want it out on any, under any circumstance. I think the other problem, that, and it's a practical one that I've raised with a number of people, experts in this field, so you decide that you can somehow uh, do a better job, not that you haven't been doing it on emissions on the production side. What happens when you have those saying it's not good enough? You have to also account for emissions on the other side, that is the, uh, the, the area where you're refining it. So uh, a pipeline, for instance, can't be built because of what it does. It tends to, uh, according to uh, environmental extremists and our own Canadian government, it's downstream emissions that matter. So I think uh, Sonovus uh, and Shell and, and uh, Suncor uh, and Imperial are all kidding themselves. Uh, this is perhaps a, a last-minute move to try to appease for the, to get some way in which they can get regulators off their tail. But I think all of them realize that uh, the game is pretty much over for Canadian energy. And uh, Canadians are going to have to decide how you uh, compensate for 10 11% of your GDP because that's a pretty significant hole that's uh, being created right now. Uh, with companies that can know, you know that uh, investments in Canada are drying up 
and that uh, energy in Canada is becoming less and less viable, meaning, of course, our standard living is about to take a hit, not just in terms of revenues that can no longer come from that industry, but most importantly, the cost of living. And if, if you have any doubt in that, uh, Scott, check the price at the grocery stores these days. There's a direct correlation between uh, energy prices, uh, the supply chain being affected in a number of ways, uh, farmers being hit, processors being hit, and of course, uh, the price being passed on to you and I, the consumer. Uh, that was fascinating at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, uh, environmentalists jumping on board and saying, "Look, there's no demand for oil. It's falling through the basement." <laughs> and it's like, well, that, as soon as you fire up the country, that all changes, well, uh, or the world. That, that being yeah. said, I don't know. Um, so, what? A- yeah. So, so, but think of that. We they want to achieve fifty times, uh, you know, the reduction in our emissions. Uh, we we might be able to see a 6% reduction as a result of lockdowns over the past year and a half. We have to, according to the Prime Minister, increase that number sevenfold. So you're going to have to shut down the Canadian economy from doing anything and everything for the next seven years. I don't think that's on. Uh, you think the lockdowns by the Ford government is something. Wait till you see the effect of uh, those saying we can't move our vehicles, we can't do anything uh, as far as uh, moving our economy to meet that net zero crazy la-la land uh, uh, 2050 target. Uh, news today uh, or this week about an Edmonton hydrogen facility. What are your thoughts on that? Hey, look, I think hydrogen is a great idea, but it requires a significant amount of natural gas to produce it. So unless we're talking uh, what they refer to as green versus blue hydrogen, um, I don't see it happening. I think all of these things are, are, are to happen. You know, In a previous life, I worked uh, public relations for Toyota Canada. That's a company, largest uh, number one uh, vehicle manufacturer in the world, doesn't want to go EVs, says hi, there is a future in hydrogen. But uh, I think we have to be mindful and be careful of the, uh, the infrastructure as well as the science behind it. It's, uh, hydrogen isn't uh, you know, like going out and uh, uh, being worried about dropping a cigarette in gasoline. Hydrogen is a little bit more volatile, so yeah, <laughs> the yeah, technology yeah. is coming. It may not be there for a long time. And last time I checked, every single one of those uh, units and products require natural gas uh, to, uh, as fuel uh, to, to create the hydrogen. And more importantly, the car you're driving from the tires uh, to, the, uh, to the polymers to the glass all require a significant amount of uh, oil and fossil fuels to make them a reality. Hey, we haven't heard about Line 5 in a while. Has it been shut down yet? What's going on, Dan? <laughs> no shutdown, and uh, uh, we're just waiting for a court to make up, a couple of courts to make up decisions as to whether it's federal jurisdiction uh, in the United States or uh, state jurisdiction. Goes to state jurisdiction, then we're in big trouble. Uh, again, this is no longer a question of uh, negotiation between countries. It's coming down to the courts. I expected Biden, when he came into uh, Michigan, to talk about this because it's an important hit to the uh, Canadian economy should it happen. And, of course, our federal government has made that uh, abundantly clear, albeit late. Uh, but uh, he came in just to unveil the, uh, the Ford truck, uh, battery Ford truck, and uh, thought it was great to talk about this, uh, this, being, this sucker being fast as opposed to recognizing that, uh, you know, if that pipeline gets shut down, a court order uh, makes it so um, we're in a whole heap of trouble and it's going to happen dramatically and suddenly uh, within, you know, the speed of a guillotine. We have certainly seen what the what U.S. ingenuity can do once it puts its mind to it. Uh, a vaccination is, is the greatest example that we can think of right now. What if, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, uh, they put that sort of ingenuity behind renewables? I think they have. Uh, I have a number of friends who work for the Department of Energy, uh, Arizona State University, and I'm talking Canadians who've done very well down there. I won't mention names because they happen to be personal friends, and I've been following this since 2003. This isn't a new thing. I think every attempt has been made to try to uh, improve, and those improvements are taking place, especially on the internal combustion engine. Uh, but I think we have to realize that there are limits to the laws of physics, and uh, uh, everyone wants to drive EVs. Everybody wants to assume that we have battery storage and we can do all these things to replace or displace the bulk and heft uh, and reliability of fossil fuels. But, you know, we've been on this for a long time and uh, without sounding, uh, you know, uh, flippant or in any way, you know, disingenuous or uh, rude, uh, there's a reason why 100 years ago the world abandoned electric vehicles. Um, and although uh, they're a great little thing and great if you want to go from point A to point B, we're just not at the stage yet where it can displace the effectiveness and efficiency of the internal combustion engine. But it has been, ironically, those regulations on better fuel mileage that has given us vehicles today uh, for which, uh, you know, uh, uh, one, it would take uh, the, 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 uh, a vehicle on today is being built today 
has, uh, uh, you know, the equivalent in terms of the emissions, one uh, seventeenth of a car that was built only 20, 25 years ago. So I think we're getting there. Um, and it's going to be a variety of energies and a variety of sources. But I, I suspect there's no need in going devil's advocacy here. I think it's pretty clear that uh, a variety of energies continues to be the way ahead. And it isn't just putting our eggs all in one basket, as Canada's trying to do with electrification. Uh, because if you put everything in terms, in terms of electricity, good night uh, if you have an electrical storm, an ice storm, uh, or any kind of solar disruption. And I make no mistake about solar disruptions, because that's part and parcel of the U.S. planning and FEMA that I was involved with in NEMA and NASIO, uh, where that could very well be a strike to which there would be no response. At least fossil fuels, you can turn on your barbecue with propane, you've got natural gas, uh, you've got the ability to uh, to fend off, especially in cold, extreme temperatures, uh, you know, any type of uh, you know, unforeseen uh, disaster. We're putting all your bags in one basket with electrification, uh, assuming, of course, you have the wind power and, of course, the solar power to match what nuclear and coal and natural gas can do. Uh, good luck with that. But let's just be mindful of this, Scott. Uh, while we want to twist ourselves into pretzels and kill our industry, our oil sector, our natural gas sector, the Chinese, the Australians, the Russians and the Indians are right now planning even more coal production, uh, increasing their emissions while we serve as international Boy Scouts hurting ourselves. And I think that's critical. We've all got to be in this together, as we've heard before on other stories. Uh, it seems to me that uh, Canada is doing itself a disservice by not recognizing the reality about it. Uh, only got a little bit of time left here, but uh, obviously we've, as you mentioned, lots of, of shove push towards electric vehicles, even to the point where we don't want to be buying the batteries from anybody. We want to be mining all the materials and, and producing all of this, so we're not farming it out to other uh, people and such. Uh, is the and we remember where the mining industry was a few decades ago? Is the mining industry uh, that is needed to uh, to to create uh, batteries and electric vehicles and all the electrification you're talking about? Is that mining industry the same? As, will will that be the same environmental disaster as what we're seeing with fossil fuels now? Well, the carbon intensity required to ex- extract, uh, you know, uh, a pound of lithium takes five takes five hundred pounds of, uh, of of earth to be moved, uh, and I think we have to be mindful of, you know, the the fact that when it comes to energy like electricity and, and mining and other things, you know, China controls eighty percent of the battery production globally. And that can change, I'm sure. Uh, but I think we have to recognize that uh, we have our work cut out for ourselves. And uh, you don't have to talk so much about batteries. One of the one of the great creations and necessities to make an EV work is these little things called microchips. And, uh, you know, cars like, uh, I don't know, the Ford Edge or the uh, Ford uh, Nautilus, uh, you know, require 17 of those. Drive by, by the Oakville Ford plant. You'll see 13, 14,000 of those vehicles just sitting there idle because we can't even get the computer chips right. So, uh, <laughs> I'm not suggesting that uh, it's uh, the bridge too far. I'm just suggesting that uh, you know we can wish all of these things and we can plan for all these things, but I think we have to get real and realistic about what we can achieve and not throw the baby out with the bathwater as we're doing by killing pipelines without consequence uh, and kept so capriciously in the minds of most Canadians, especially us here in eastern Ontario, who have no idea of uh, what the government policies have done to scupper uh, oil pipelines that are going to come back to pinch us right in the backside, especially those of us working in the public sector. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, the Keystone XL pipeline has been officially scrapped. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Bye, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.